that last line of I stand amazed, the last verse of I stand amazed in your presence always just kind of catches me. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. When my faith becomes sight, it will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am overwhelmed in this moment just by the reality of your love. And Lord, I look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Lord, I look forward to the day when my faith becomes sight, when I see you face to face, and I can join with the millions, billions of people throughout the ages and sing undistracted, unbound, and completely free of your love for me. Lord, we pray that today as we open your word, as we look into what you've called us to talk about today, the story of a man who followed you but also disobeyed. Lord, that you would give us just a vision of what it means, that you would show us how to think like you think, and then to act on that for the glory of your name and for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are starting a new series of messages today. We're going to run through the next four weeks, um, through the first part of this, uh, or through most of the month of March. It's crazy that it's March, right? March 1st after Leap Day. You might do anything special for Leap Day yesterday? No, me neither. All right, all right. So leap day is over, so that means everybody's birthdays got pushed an extra day longer in the week, um, starting now, and March 1st is upon us. And so we're going to look over the next few weeks at a new message series called The Rise and Fall of King Solomon, or the King. And we're going to start today looking at what is one of the most famous kind of moments in his life, and, and it's going to kind of reverberate or resound with many of us because we've been asked this question. And this, this is a question that gets asked at icebreakers. You ever been to a conference, and you're in a new group of people, and an icebreaker happens, or in a small group in churches, or even in our DNA, we've asked this question sometimes. You ask kids this question. They make movies about this question. And the question is, if a genie appeared out of a bottle and said, you have three wishes, what would you wish for? Now, of course, the rules apply. You can't wish for more wishes. Can't wish for infinite wishes. Can't wish for somebody to fall in love with you. Can't make that happen. But what would you wish for if you were given three wishes? Anything you want, no restrictions what would you wish for? All right, turn to somebody around you. Tell them at least one. All right, if you've got three, some of you got three at the top of your mind. Boom, boom, boom. But if you've got one, say it right there. All right, back, back here, back this way. Let me ask you a quick question. Okay, this honest moment, confession time. How many of you said things that you would not have said because you were in church and around people. There you go. I see you, Dirk Hawali. All right. Like it may have been changed a little bit because I'm in church. I can't say what I would really wish for because that sounds selfish or whatever, right? Well, uh, I was reading this week about a, um, a pastor who was with his kids on, um, on a, they were touring some national parks and they were at Zion National Park and they have, apparently you have to go through a tunnel on their drive to get there and their guide was telling them if, if you hold your breath through the whole tunnel, 
then a wish will come true for you. Right? And so they went through the tunnel, they got on the other side, and that night they were just talking about it. And somebody said, I'll tell you what I wish for, one of the kids. He was like, awesome, what would you wish for? And he said, I wish that God would use me in his global mission. The pastor said that must have started some sort of spiritual competition because then a daughter said, well, I wish that God would make me a NICU nurse that would go to foreign countries that are poor and help the babies there. And then the third kid said, I wish for a dog. (laughs) How many of you would have been the dog person? All right, like it's all right. I wish for a dog. Right. That's what I got. Right. And so (laughs) it's an interesting question. And we're going to talk about. Today, a moment when God actually did that. Now, not three wishes. He didn't come to him. He wasn't a genie in a bottle. This is the almighty, everlasting God. But he brought something to someone and said, ask, and whatever you want, I will give. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. That's in the Old Testament. It's not halfway through the Old Testament, but it's past all of the early five books. And you get into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they're in the historical books. First Kings chapter 3. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the rise and fall of King Solomon. The rise and fall of King Solomon. You see that Solomon is an interesting figure because he starts really well And he doesn't necessarily end well. And there are lessons for us to be learned all along that path of his life. And so in 1 Kings chapter 3, if you turn there in your Bibles or open up your apps and got there, 1 Kings chapter 3, it says this to start. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace, the Lord's temple, and the wall surrounding Jerusalem. So here's what's happening that we understand. We are dropped into a story. Now, sometimes when you get into a Bible passage or a Bible story, you just kind of go and you don't worry about it. But we're dropped into the middle of the story with a man named Solomon, and we have to kind of ask the question, who is Solomon? How did he get here? What's going on? And what we have here is Solomon is David's son, right? David's son, who is now being given the kingship of a united Israel. So in the history of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, it was only united for somewhere around 100, maybe 125 years. And that time you have Saul, who's trying to consolidate it, David and Solomon. Those are the only kings of a unified Israel. So Solomon is third there. But what's interesting is when you look at Solomon's life, he wasn't supposed to be king. First of all, his mother was not David's first wife. His mother was Bathsheba, you know, the wife of David that David procured when he stole her from his friend and then had his friend killed. Now Solomon is not the child of that first relationship, that child died, but he is the next child from David and Bathsheba. Now here's the thing too, Solomon's not supposed to be here because technically he was at least fourth in line to be king. And so the first son, the oldest son of David was a guy named Amnon. And Amnon is there to be 
king. He is in line to be king. He is the oldest of David. And as you know, the way that kingship works is the oldest becomes king. Amnon, though, had some issues. In fact, he raped his half-sister, Tamar. David didn't do anything about it much. In fact, David kind of locked himself in there and said, I'm not going to take care of it. And so David's other son, Absalom, decided to take matters into his own hand, and he killed Amnon. So Absalom was next. But Absalom was got frustrated with his dad because his dad wouldn't act, because his dad wouldn't do what he was supposed to do. And he was a little upset because David was taking too long to die. Like, Dad, when are you going to turn the business over to me? It's time. And so Absalom decided at some point, based on the on the Tamar thing, defending his sister and all that happened there and just waiting too long, he said, it's time for me to take over. And so he gathers men together. He literally takes a coup group and he puts a coup group together and wins. Executes a coup on his dad. Enters into the palace. Ask an advisor, what shall I do? And they say, you ought to go up on the roof so everybody can see and take all of your dad's concubines. And so he does. David gathers his forces back together and they go try to retake the palace. Fight ensues. Amnon, I mean, Absalom is fleeing from his life or from the people that are there. His hair, which is described as beautiful and long and magnificent, gets caught in a tree. And he's hanging by his hair in a tree. And one of David's advisors comes along and says, we can't kill him, let's take him captive. And another one of David's advisors says, we're not letting him live. And he stabs him three or four times with javelins. So Absalom is gone. Next in line was Adonijah. While David is on his deathbed, literally on his deathbed, giving in orders and instructions for what is to come. Adonijah decides, hey, it's my time to take the throne. And he gathers a priest together, and he gets an advisor, military advisor, and they go to a place where they can make a sacrifice, and he declares himself king, and the priest anoints him as king while David is still on the deathbed. Well, Bathsheba didn't like that. Nathan didn't like that. Some of the other priests didn't like that, so they go to David and they convince David to name Solomon king. And so he does. The problem is Adonijah had still been declared king, but not officially from David, so they had to take care of that. And they said, well, just don't do anything unless he makes a terrible request. Adonijah requests to have one of David's wives, concubines, part of his family. And so they kill Adonijah. Now, that's not to mention the priest that they exiled or the military leader that they killed or somebody else that happened all in the first two chapters of First Kings for Solomon to be king. Why did I go through all that? First of all, for you to know, it's kind of interesting. Second of all, he came from a messed up family. Amen. <laughs> and sometimes it's good just to remind ourselves that we look at the people in the Bible and we're like, David, David's such an awesome guy. David's family was messed up. And to remind us that some of you in this room come from messed up families. I mean, you can amen as loud as you want to on that, right? right? Some of you come from that. And the reality is, the reality is that it doesn't matter what your past family is like. 
your future, if you follow Jesus, is secure with him. In fact, many of the people that God used in mighty ways in the Old Testament and the New Testament were people that came from messed up families, messed up paths. And so we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and we immediately see a difference between Solomon and his dad, David. It said, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Immediately we see a difference. By the way, you know this, right? That if you have the biggest enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, if they're not number one, Egypt is at least number two. You got Egypt and the Philistines, and that's it, basically. Babylon comes on later. But Egypt is the place where God rescued him from. And the first thing we see Solomon doing as king, official act, is he marries Pharaoh's daughter in order to have a political alliance with what's happening. We see instantly that David was a warrior, Solomon a politician. David liked battles. Solomon wanted buildings. David was a soldier. Solomon was a scholar. Chapter 3, verse 1 is also just a little bit of foreshadowing. You know what that means, right? When something happens that predicts something that's going to happen later. And we know, and I'm going to give you the end of the story at the beginning. When we get to the fourth week of this series, Solomon is not going to be in as good of a place as he is now. And the main reason for that is because he had a thousand wives and concubines. That all, and that's bad enough, but they all brought their foreign gods into Israel. Chapter 3, verse 2 says this. However, the people were sacrificing on high places because until that time, a temple for the Lord's name had not been built, right? There's no centralized temple in Jerusalem. Who builds the temple in Jerusalem? Solomon. It's Solomon's temple. And so that's going to be part of his process. But until that time, they didn't have that. And so where they worshiped was scattered kind of all over the place. And he gives us a description of Solomon. Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statues of his father David. But he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. What that meant is that he was not yet consolidating worship like he was supposed to. He was still letting it kind of be free-flowing. Next verse. The king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. And he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Just another quick little history lesson here. The Not only had the places where people worship been scattered but if you remember in the old testament when moses built the tabernacle there was the ark of the covenant there was the all the the things that went along with it and they got scattered so at this point in history david has brought the ark of the covenant back to jerusalem but that's the only thing in jerusalem the tabernacle the actual tent the altar where people sacrificed and offered sacrifices was in gibeon after it had been destroyed almost in shiloh moved to nob and then brought to gibeon and so here's what happens Solomon, as he's beginning his time as king, makes an alliance first, that's important, and then he decides to go and seek the Lord. At Gibeon, after he's offered this thousand sacrifices, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, ask, what should I give you? Now, part of the reason that this is here, before we move to what Solomon asked for, is to validate Solomon as the king of Israel. Remember what we talked about a minute ago? It had been a bumpy ride, the transition from David to Solomon, right? And there were people that weren't real excited about the fact that he was the 
king because they were supporters of Adonijah or they had supported Absalom or they had really thought Absalom did Amnon wrong. Like people were like, I don't, how do we know this is the one? And part of what happens in this story is the Lord validates Solomon as the king because the Lord speaks to Solomon. But then he doesn't only just speak, he comes to him and says, ask, period, ask, what should I give you? No limitations, no conditions. He cannot ask for more than God is able or, in this instance, willing to give. But he must ask. Now, I want you to think for a minute because I wanna, what I want to do today is I want us to see this story. And this is going to sound strange to you. I want us to see this story in a light that it is not as exceptional as we sometimes think of it as. Because here's what's happening. Solomon has just been named king of his country. We're going to see in a minute his request. He's going to tell us that he's a little young. We'll talk about that age and all that. But he's new. There has been turmoil in his family and in the kingdom because of it for the last ten years. And he's thinking to himself, he's going to sacrifice to the Lord. He's already saying, Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your understanding to take these people. Now, he's also on his own doing political affiliations out there, but he says, Lord, I want to be your king in your way. I'm following you like my dad did, and I want to be your king. And so when he gets there and God says to him, what do you want? Ask, and I'll give it to you. It's not just at a random moment in his life. It's at a very pivotal moment in his life. And in the midst of that, this is how he responds. Solomon replied, You have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today, or as I am today. Verse 7. Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So that question is asked, Solomon, what do you want? Whatever it is, ask it and I'll give it to you. Whatever you desire, ask and I will give it to you. And Solomon starts by saying, Lord, you are a great God. You are great to my dad. You've been great to your people. You've been great to me. You've put me on the throne. I'm not able to do all that he is. I'm young. I'm inexperienced. And so as I come to you today, this is what I ask. Let me ask you a question. If today, before the sermon, I just walked up to you in the hallway, and you're somebody that grew up in church, you're somebody that knows the story of Solomon, and I said to you, do you remember that story where God tells Solomon he can ask him for anything he wants and he'll give it to him? You're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that story. What did he ask God for? What would you have said? Wisdom, right? And he did in a way. But that's not what he actually asked for, right? See, we think, and I think it's in our understanding, it helps us to see things. When I think of wisdom, like what did he ask for? He thought of wisdom. Our culture thinks of wisdom as some man sitting up on a mountain somewhere with his legs crossed and people around him and just giving out wise sayings. Knowledge. Or 
an old country grandmother sitting on a rocking chair on the front porch. Right? Saying things that don't seem to make sense. You go, oh, man, that's deep. Like we think of wisdom as intellectual understanding that is deep. But that's not what Solomon asked for. Right? If I were to ask you today, hey, what would you, how would you describe the wisest person on the earth today? Now, listen, I'm not asking you for a particular person, but what would they be like? My guess is you would think of someone that had a massive amount of knowledge. Or an older person that has lived well. At least our culture would. But what Solomon actually asked for are two very practical things. He says, first of all, give me a receptive heart. The word there actually means a listening heart or a perceiving heart or even obedient heart. What he says is, Lord, give me ability to see what you see, to desire what you desire, to look at the world like you look at the world. Give me a heart that listens. Another way to understand this is he says, give me a heart that comes under training. And what that means is thoughts, my thoughts, I want my thoughts to be trained to instinctively know how you would act, how you would respond, what you would say in the midst of a difficult moment before you even say it. So he asked the Lord, give me a listening heart, an, an ability to hear what you want me to hear, to see what you want me to see. And then he says the second thing is, To give me discernment. What that word means in the original language is this. To make a right decision when the answer is not laid out clearly. A few months ago I got the opportunity to go hear our current governor, uh, Governor Bill Lee. And he talked through lots of stuff. He talked about his personal testimony and how tragedy with his first wife uh, dying suddenly um, impacted him. And how the Lord has blessed him in the midst of all that. But there was a moment when I just remember this moment because I'd heard this quote before and I don't know who said it originally. And he said, I don't know who said it originally. But they ask about the difficult part of being governor. He said, the difficult part about being governor is when you are governor of the state, if a decision makes it to your desk, there are no easy answers. Like if there were easy answers, they would have already been answered. He said, so every day I have decisions on my desk that are not easy to answer. And Solomon is saying, as king of Israel, every day I'm going to deal with answers that are not easy to determine. And Lord, in those moments, I need to know what is right. There will be moments in your life, times in your life, when the answer won't be biblically obvious. And where the Bible is clear, it's easy. Don't do this, do do that. It's easy. But what about who to marry? Or to take that job? Or to make a financial decision that goes that way? What do you do in those situations when you're seeking the Lord's wisdom for a situation that's not clearly laid out in the Bible? Tim Keller says that wisdom is knowing how to navigate the realities of life when the rules don't help. Solomon gives us an example of that, or the writer does, almost immediately. Because in chapter 3, verse 16 and following, is one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. In the outer world. It's the place where they talk about the wisdom of Solomon being demonstrated. And that story, two prostitutes come to him. 
And they tell a story of the fact that they were the only ones in the house. They both just had children. And the one woman rolled over on her child and suffocated the child in the night. The other woman is claiming that that woman then stole her baby and brought him back. And so they come to Solomon and say, whose baby is this? And Solomon says, let's just make this simple. Just take the baby, divide it in half, and give one to, half of it to each. And one mother says, sure, that's fine. And the other one says, don't do that. It's hers. Give it to her. And Solomon says, that is the real mom. In that situation, what do you do? Solomon says, I'm going to lead these people. And we're going to get to that in a minute. The why? What he is asking is, God, I want to see the world as you see it. And then I want to make decisions based on that. Why? Well, he gives us the answer to that. He says, because I'm young, the nation's in turmoil, and you have given me a responsibility over these people. He says, this is not for my sake. This is for the sake of your people. There's a line in there that I think is just interesting um, because of the way he says it. He says at the end of verse 9, For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the word great there is a word that literally means this heavy people of yours. Now, he wasn't making comments about their weight. Literally. He is saying that I have a heavy responsibility in my life to lead these people. And God, I want to do it correctly. Solomon is given the opportunity to ask anything he wants. And he says, at this moment in my life, when I am asked to lead these people who are weighty and heavy and the responsibility is more than I can bear, Lord, I need to see the world as you see it and I need to act accordingly. I said, I, I want us not to see this as exceptional sometimes we think. When I, when I think back to when I was a kid or even a teenager or even an adult hearing this story, for some reason, I, for some reason I remember the flannel graphs like Solomon being like 12 years old. You know what I'm talking about? Like children's church. Some of you, that's over your head. But like maybe the VeggieTale videos. I don't know. Maybe that's for some of the younger ones, right? But I remember like thinking like Solomon's like 11 or 12 years old. And like, Lord, this kid, like, Lord, just give me wisdom. But that's not the case here. We know that he reigned for around 40 years. We know that when he ended, he had a 41-year-old son. So the reality is that when he's asking this, he's already a father. He's already married. And so this isn't a request of a 10-year-old asking God for wisdom and leading his people. This is the request of a new king who realizes the place he's been put in is a difficult place. And so it's not as exceptional as an 11 or 12-year-old asking God for wisdom instead of a bunch of other stuff. It can speak to any of us at any moment in our lives that we find the burden of what's happening in our lives becoming heavy. As we're growing up, as we have children, as we think about our kids, as we think about our relationship with our spouse, as we think about the responsibilities at work, as we think about all the extra stuff that we're involved in, as we think about our commitment to the church, about where we need to go, about how we impact, about how we speak to our neighbors that we talked about for the last four weeks. Like When those burdens begin to weigh us down and we begin to look and say, this is a heavy thing you've laid on me, Lord. This is a difficult thing that you've given me. This is a problematic thing. And Lord, I don't know how to handle this. Then we follow Solomon's example. Four simple things and then we're done. First of all, we acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of our God. 
He says from the beginning, Lord, you have been great to my dad. You were great to him because he was faithful to you. You've been great to him. You've been great to me already. You put me in this place. The word that he uses there about his love is hesed, which is the Hebrew word for faithful, loving kindness, the way like the Jesus Storybook Bible is the always, always going, never stopping, always pursuing love of God. He says, your love is amazing. Your goodness is off the charts. Your greatness is more than I can imagine. We acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of our God. And the second thing we do in those moments is we come in humility. God promises to not turn away the humble. God blesses those who humbly ask for help. Just some verses. Psalm 146.5 says, Blessed is he who helps is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 55.2, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 28, 6, blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my prayers. The Lord is my strength and my shield because my heart trusted in him. I was helped. And then James in the New Testament 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Solomon comes to him and says, I don't have any leadership experience. I'm young. I'm not a child, but I'm young in this leadership, and I am desperately in need of you. In a chaotic nation that has seen the other three guys that were in front of me to take the throne killed, God, I need you to stabilize everything. And the third part is you ask big according to God's plans for his glory. Most of our prayers are safe and weak and selfish. Most of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, either ask for things that have already been promised. So we ask God to be with us, to walk with us, to go with us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's been promised. You don't have to ask for it. Or we're repetitious. We repeat the kind of the same things. Or we think about things in our own lives that we need. We have lots of gimme moments. But that's not Solomon's prayer. Yes, he asked for some things, but he asked for some things for the glory of God. Most of our prayers are weak and small and selfish. Solomon asked big for others and for the glory of God. Solomon says, Lord, I want to see what you see. Act according to what I see for the sake of your kingdom and for the glory of your name. And then the last part of our prayer is that we simply believe. James 1, 5 through 7 tells us that when we come to the Lord, we need to believe. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, receiving heart, discernment, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. He doesn't, he wants to, he wants to give it to us and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting for the doubters is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. When you come to the Lord and you ask for wisdom for a situation, say, I want to see the world as you see it. I want to act according to it for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Then believe God's going to answer. Why would he not answer that prayer? Well, he does give an answer to Solomon, and we'll end with this, because it launches us into the rest of the time. Verse 10 says, Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this, so God said to him, Because you've requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself, because your prayer wasn't selfish, in other words, 
or the death of your enemies, but you ask discernment for yourself in order to administer justice for my people, I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there's never been anyone like you before and never will be again. Verse 13. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. Verse 14 reminds us of the stipulation. If you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Verse 15. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for his servants. Solomon asks, and the Lord provides. And Solomon worships. If you want to know the pattern of consistent prayer and hearing from God in the Scriptures, it is that you ask humbly of a good and great God for wisdom to do what God called you to do already for the glory of His name and the sake of His kingdom. And when God gives it to you, you worship Him. That is what Solomon's life begins with. Now, maybe you're here today and you're at one of those moments of decision and you're figuring out how to move forward. I just ask you today, would you be willing this week, starting today, to say, Lord, give me a vision of what you see. Let me see the situation as you see it. And Lord, when I see it as you see it, Lord, let me act accordingly for the sake of your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Let's pray together.